I'm in James chapter 5, and I really couldn't come up with a good title because sometimes my brain just doesn't work that well. So I'm entitling this one, Seven Situations. Because if you read at the end of James, basically what he's doing is he's commissioning the people of God. He's went through a lot of different issues throughout the book of James, and we've, we've dealt with those verse by verse. He comes to the end, and he's commissioning them, and he's, and he's dealing with different situations in life that many of us have endured, we are enduring, maybe we're going through, and he basically just listed. He's, he's saying, you guys got to go out, and I want you to continue the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. But he says, there's going to be certain situations in life that you're going to face, and I want to give you some final instructions for how to face these types of seasons that we all endure. And you, you, you come in here this morning, you may be in, in a very particular type of season, and I bet you fit into one of these seven categories that James is going to go through. And the first question that he asks in, in James 5, verse 13, is who is suffering? Who is suffering, right? I want you to think about that for a minute. Who is suffering this morning? And in James 5.13, what he actually says is anyone among you suffering. He says, let him pray, right? And it seems like a just very short answer to a big subject, doesn't it? Anybody suffering? Let him pray. Praise God. Let's move on, right? Like there's got to be more to it than that. And I think obviously there is more to it than that. But he's, he's, he's listing some things. And here's the truth. We live in a world right now of great suffering, don't we? Like not a week is going by in the past, uh, I don't know, years, I guess, but it just seems like over the past couple of years, I don't know if it seems that way to you, but it seems like to me, even as a pastor, it seems like suffering has intensified. And if it's not local, if it's not in your own life or your own family or your own community, well, the problem is that we're all exposed to the news and the media, and honestly, we're more familiar with what's going on globally than sometimes we are with the things going on in our own backyard, aren't we? And so we have uh, wars going on. We have uh, school shootings going on. These types of things. And we live in a world where there is an immense amount of suffering. And oftentimes our response to a lot of suffering, sadly, even within the Christian church, is a lot of political bickering. Amen. Isn't it? And, and how we, 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 we've been attuned to the world system that when anything bad happens, how we respond is to be basically conformed by one political side or the other and just start to bicker and complain about what's taking place as opposed to doing what James says, and that is to pray. Now, obviously, there are times when we have to stand up and we have to make good, solid positions made known on what would be good ideas. But I'm telling you, man, it's a hard world that we live in because there's no middle ground anymore. It's either one side or the other. And when it comes to suffering and, and, and who's right and who's wrong, man, it's like you pick one position, then you're, you, then you're, just, you're dead over there, right? And, and it's hard for us to engage one another in civil conversation because when we're suffering, we think that there's an answer to every situation. Sometimes there's just not an answer. Sometimes you need to go to prayer. Sometimes you need to intercede for people. Sometimes you need to stand in the gap. But is anyone in here this morning suffering? Maybe you're dealing with some financial struggles. Maybe you're dealing with some emotional struggles or some spiritual struggles or relational struggles and you feel like everything is pushing back against you. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this morning, but I guarantee you there are people in here this morning that internally, on some level, there's some suffering going on. There's some pain that you are dealing with. And when, James, when we go through something personally, James calls us to prayer. 
When we go through suffering, there can always be more complaining, there can be more anger, there can be more fighting, there can be more self-medicating, and sometimes we move into those types of things. But James says, no, the first thing I want you to do when you see suffering increase is I want you to move into a place of prayer to God. And here's one of the things that I want to say just about prayer in general. And people need to get this because often we can get focused on the technicalities. Well, I don't know how to pray or I don't know how to do this. And what's so interesting is that in the Old Testament, God is called Father 15 times. And it's usually not even mentioned in a relational way. It's mentioned as God being the Father of the nation of Israel. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, He shows up as the Son of God. And He actually calls God Father 65 times in Matthew and Luke. And he calls God Father 100 times in the book of John itself. Because when God, when Jesus came to reveal who God was, the name that he wanted to reveal him as most was God the Father. He taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. And basically what he's trying to teach is this is not an impersonal God. This is not a God who is far off, who doesn't care. This is a God who is close to you like a father is to his child. And he's saying, You want to know what prayer looks like? It looks like a relationship of a good daddy to his children. A good daddy to his children. And, I, you know, this is new whenever you just first start having children. I've got Naomi running around. And, man, all the time, all she wants is she just throws her hands up to me because she wants me to pick her up and hold her. She just wants to be close to her daddy. If she gets a boo-boo, you know what I'm talking about? She comes up and holds it out in front of my mouth so I can kiss her boo-boo. You know what I'm talking about? And when you start to experience that, you start to realize, when I watch uh, kids interacting with their parents, especially their fathers around here, when kids know that they have a father that loves them, that cares about them, that they can trust, and they know that their daddy's there to protect them, what do they start doing? You dads with some older kids, you know about this. They start asking for things, don't they? They immediately know this dad of mine, he's, he, he loves me, he protects me, and I know that I can go to him and I can ask him for things. And so what he's saying is, is that when you enter into prayer, you're not just going through a list of this or that or praying to an impersonal God. You are going to God your father the same way that Naomi runs up to me. You're going to somebody who loves you more than you could ever imagine and he loves to give good gifts to his children. He knows exactly what you're going through. And here's something else that's very interesting because when we talk about suffering, sometimes it seems like God is not involved in that process with us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, here's what it says. It says, Praise be to the God and what and what? Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what it what it titles God. He's the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. So he's called him the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now here's the thing, when sickness happens... When loss happens, when death happens, when pain happens, when all of these things happen, it feels like God is a hundred miles away in our pain often. It feels like He's nowhere to be found. But see, what God has revealed is that He is so intimately engaged in our pain and in our suffering that He chose to enter into it. That's what Jesus Christ on the cross reveals. Not that, hey, I don't want to be involved with you humans. I don't want to be involved in your suffering. No, He enters into our pain. He takes on flesh and then He enters into the greatest amount of suffering you could imagine by dying a death on the cross after being tormented and beaten. 
He's saying, I'm not removing myself from your suffering. I'm entering into your suffering with you so that I can be the God of compassion and comfort. And I can be touched with the feeling of your infirmities and your brokenness and your weakness. I am not away from you in your suffering. I am with you in the middle of it. And the cross demonstrates that. And so when he says he's the father of compassion, compassion comes from a Latin word that really is two words brought together, and it means to suffer with. He's the father who suffers with you. He feels you in your pain. When you're in your sickness, when you're in your loss, God is right there in the middle of it with you, and he wants to bring you comfort. And here's what he's saying. When, when people are suffering, they need to, be, to know about this God. This God of compassion, this Father of compassion that they can pray to. And not only that, if you will allow God to comfort you in your suffering and you will learn to pray and have a relationship with God the Father where He comforts you in that suffering, then He says, guess what? It's going to turn around and one day you'll be able to comfort people who are in their brokenness with the same comfort and compassion that God has comforted you with. And so He's doing it for a purpose. But number one, prayer is God's gift of relationship to us by which we access the resources of heaven. you got a heavenly Father who has all the peace in the world you can imagine, all the joy in the world you can, you can imagine that is available. It's a joy and a peace that passes understanding. You don't know why you're experiencing this, but it is the resources of heaven. Number two, prayer transfers the burdens you cannot carry to the God who can. And I want you to understand this, that there are burdens in our world today. I watch the news every day. I get phone calls from people in our church. And there are some things that I just cannot carry. You're not capable of carrying it. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. How many of you in here this morning feel like you're currently carrying more than you can carry? He says, cast all of your cares upon me because I care for you. And God's asking you to bring those two things, those things to, to him that are on your heart. And you know, I, I pray several different ways. I got to be honest with you. Like I pray several different ways, but every single week, I at least take time to do a couple of different things. Every single week, there's a time, there's a moment when I come to the Lord, whether it be here in my home, in my bedroom, but I come to the Lord and I kneel down. Sometimes I get down on my face. And this is a lot of times why I call people to the altar because I, here's what I believe. People want to say, well, I, you know, I pray to the Lord in my heart. Well, thank God you need to always be praying to the Lord in your heart. But there are moments when you offer your body as a sacrifice. See, we are a complete human being, spirit, soul, and body. We don't just give God our spirit and our soul and our heart. We give Him our bodies. We give Him everything that we are. This is why we want passionate praise and worship. This is why sometimes when you get alone with God, you need to kneel before God your Father because you're basically letting your body tell your soul we are in submission to God and we're here to hear from you alone God it's signifying man we need you God more than anything and so in a humble response to God I will lay face down until I start to sense the presence of my father on my life and it's a very serious thing. I'm not just coming to unload a lit laundry list of prayers that I have I'm getting before God until I sense my father show up amen if you begin to pray in such a way that it's not just you talking, but you're waiting on your Father to show up and minister to you. Because it's not just about you talking, but it's also about you listening to your Father who loves to speak to His children. And so I'm waiting on Him. And other times what I'll do is I'll take a walk. I love to go outside. 
And I'll just walk and pray. And it's as if I'm having a conversation with God my Father as I'm speaking to Him and He's speaking back to me. And I'm pouring out my soul before Him, but I'm taking a walk in creation, the stillness. I'm turning off my phone. I'm disconnecting. Sometimes I ain't got nowhere else to go. I I pray out here in our beautiful gravel parking lot. Amen. And the gravel just really, like, it just, I'm like, Lord, you created those gravels too, as ugly as they are. You know what I'm saying? Like, but, but here's the thing. The point being is you have to disconnect at some point to get with your heavenly father and get with that place. But prayer number three is inviting the great physician to do what the physicians cannot do. As great as physicians are, there are some things that they are limited to. And we need to invite the great physician to come in and do things that our natural minds and our natural powers and abilities cannot do. And number four, prayer either delivers us from our suffering or delivers us through our suffering. Some things you will pray and God will deliver you out of it. Thank God when he does. But some things you will pray and he will say, son, I need to take you through this. It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy, but it will be for my glory and I will use it and it will shape you and mold you and make you more strong and more powerful and more wise than you were if you had not gone through it with me. And so he's saying, if I don't deliver you from it, I will deliver you through it and I will take it through to the end. And Luke 23, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, He breathed his last. And see, this is a prayer of absolute trust. My question to you this morning is, can you trust God? And I want you to know that you can. But are you willing to commit your spirit, commit your soul, commit your body, commit everything in absolute trust to him? Secondly, he says, who is cheerful? So we deal with who is suffering on the opposite end of the spectrum, who is cheerful? Some people come into church and they're like, man, you know, I ain't trying to hear about anybody's bad news. I had a good week. I'm ready to shout. You know what I'm saying? Like, I had a good week, and I got a new job. My family's going good. We just had a baby. Like, there are some times when we need to celebrate. Amen. There are some times when good things are going on, and we need to recognize those good things, and we need to say, Lord, thank you for what you are doing. And that's why he says in James 5, 13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Let him sing praise. And that's what we did this morning. That's what we do every time that we meet. We sing praise together because it's biblical. It's biblical throughout the Old Testament and even into the New that we sing songs before God. We bring praise to God. And see, praise should be done at all times, not even just when you are cheerful, but there's something about being cheerful that makes it a little bit better. You ever realize that? Something about being cheerful that makes praise even better. But number one, I want to say something about singing is that singing is a way that we engage in spiritual warfare. Do you you realize that? You know that the Scripture says in Isaiah that we can put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And he's saying that you can come in depressed, you can come in broken, you can come in under the spirit of a heavy burden, this demonic power and force of the world that tries to weigh people down. And he says you can begin to lift up praise to God and worship and sing songs to God and it'll break that spirit of heaviness up off of your life and then all of a sudden you will feel that depression lift. Because oftentimes, folks, look, there are mental issues that we have, no, no doubt, but oftentimes depression is also very spiritual. Amen. Y'all with me this morning? 
And so he's saying that we can engage in spiritual warfare by the songs that we sing. In the Old Testament, before, before they would go out to any fight, any battle, any war, they would always send Judah out first. And oftentimes, Judah wouldn't even take no weapons. They say, when you boys go out to fight these guys, all we want you to do is take some instruments and start to sing praise unto the Most High God. That's why the psalmist said, let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a sharp two-edged sword in their right hand. When you begin to sing, when we begin to sing praises, to God corporately from our heart something shifts something breaks that's why I ask you lift your hands sometimes that's why I ask you to let's all sing this together because when you begin to sing it from your heart something happens spiritually singing is a way of processing and responding singing is a way of praying singing is a way of emotionally maturing you know most men in here that's why y'all are real quiet some mornings Y'all, I mean, most men aren't very emotionally mature. They're either grumpy or asleep. Anybody amen me this morning? One of the two. We're just that men are just either, either grumpy or asleep. They're not very emotionally mature. You can rarely get a man to really talk about what's going on inside of his heart. M- women are much, much more likely to open up and share what's going on. And that's why, honestly, do you know that the numbers are radically different? Like you look at like 60, 65% of all churches in America are made up of women, right? 65% of church attenders are women, right? So, so women are much more likely to be able to open up, deal with their issues, process their issues than men are. And men sing a lot less, don't they? Maybe it's because, maybe it's because, oh, boy, I ain't no sissy. You know what I'm talking about? I, I, don't, I don't know what it is about men. The greatest warrior in all of Scripture, David, was a worshiping warrior. He was a man that was mature emotionally. He knew how to pour out his heart before God. He knew how to process what he was dealing with. And he knew how to sing praise to God in any situation. And he wasn't no sissy, folks. He would whip your hind end in a street fight. But he was emotionally mature and he understood that sometimes you got to bring yourself before God and you got to sing to God and you got to worship God. And if you think singing and praying and worshiping God publicly is weird, it's because you've been raised in in an unhealthy spiritual environment. And I'm going to tell you something, men. We need to raise families where worship is normal. We need to raise families where public prayer is normal. We need to raise families where kids don't think it's weird that their dad is in the house worshiping God. We need dads that will raise up and say, I'm going to be a true biblical warrior. I'm going to give God praise. I'm going to sing songs to the Lord. I'm going to lift my hands so that when my children see me, there's something going on and they know, man, that guy right there, something's different. And they're able to open their hearts before the Lord, and it's modeled properly. But lastly, singing is a way of celebrating. And re- religious people don't get this. Like if you grew up in a church where you just thought everybody was supposed to be stone-faced and sour, bless your heart, I'm sorry for that. Because Scripture teaches that the kingdom of God is a party. There are multiple illustrations that the kingdom of God is a celebration. They strike up the band, son. They kill the fatted calf. They get people together and they say, let's have a party because my brother which was lost is now found. Something happens and there's joy in that. We ain't like the rest of the world. Look, you should not be able to go to something in public, a sporting event or something like that, and people just be joyful as all get out and then come to the church on Sunday and everybody be sour like they've been sucking on lemons. Come on, I'm preaching this morning. There we go. 
Somebody said, this guy's a little bit too much this morning. I'm trying to break that spirit of heaviness and religion off of you this morning. Because there's something that happens when we tap into the fact that God is a joyful God. And we can demonstrate that. We can be, it's a normal thing. It should be a normal thing for the joy to be, the joy of the Lord to be in God's house. Among God's people. It's a way of celebrating. We want an atmosphere of singing, of joy, of happiness, and not misery like the rest of the world. He said, if you're cheerful, let him sing praise. Ephesians 5 says it like this. I like it. Verse 18. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And debauchery is an overindulgence where you essentially, you lose your inhibitions. You do things that you wouldn't normally do. He says, don't do that. Don't get intoxicated. But be filled with the Spirit. Now notice, it's a comma because it continues in the same line of thought. And it says... Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Literally, he's saying, look, I know some of y'all you won't get drunk because you like to party. He's saying, but the reason you get drunk and like to party is because you're actually looking for something that only the Holy Spirit can do in your life. I remember when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, it took away my taste for getting drunk and partying. You know what I'm talking about. Like there was a, because now it wasn't a party in which there were alcohol and drugs. It was a Holy Ghost party. It was a party where the Holy Spirit showed up and I said, boys, if somebody had ever told me that this is what Christianity was about and I could be filled with God himself and I could feel the joy of the Lord in my heart, I would have never wanted that stuff in the first place. He says, so you don't need... He said, I know some of you, you want to get drunk, but he said, you're just looking for something that really only the Holy Spirit can give. And he says, so don't get drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he tells you even one way of how to be filled with the Holy Spirit by putting a comma. And it's, it is literally, if you read it in the Greek, I know you don't care, right? But it is a present passive imperative. That means that it is a command. You must be filled with the Spirit. And you must be filled with the Spirit now. And you must continually be being filled with the Spirit. But it's not something that you can do. It's something that is done to you as you do something. God fills you continually with His Spirit as you sing to the Lord. I mean, it don't get no easier than that. What I'm telling you this morning is that we can come in here every Sunday and experience, experience an outpouring of God's Spirit. You know, all we have to do is set aside our distractions and set aside what we've been through this week and set aside our burdens and lay them down at the ground and not be, not be in the audience watching good singers sing, but be in the band and let God be the audience and say, these people are only up here leading, but God, I'm in the band. And I'm singing this morning. And as I lift my song to the Lord and as I begin to praise God, His Spirit says, you know what? That looks like an atmosphere that I'd like to dwell in. And He starts to be poured out among us and we find ourselves being filled with the Spirit simply because we got lost in worship to our God. And what I know is that sometimes when we meet, it doesn't happen. You know why? Because most of us are spiritually and emotionally constipated. Am I being rude this morning? I mean, sometimes... Sometimes the Lord just brings his spirit of rudeness on me, I guess. But we are. I mean, we can see it in our worship that some people just need some spiritual x lax man. Like some people need flushed out. Some people need flushed out. 
to get loose before the Lord and say, man, I'm going to worship God. I don't care who, who, who looks at me. I don't care who's aggravated about it. I'm going to lift my hands. I'm going to sing to the Lord. I'm going to sing to the Lord. And it's not about anything else. It's about God Himself. I want to engage God. And so He says, look, when you are filled with the Spirit, what happens? Thanksgiving comes out. When you leave here and you got thanks in your heart, guess what? It's because you got touched by the Holy Spirit this morning. When you leave here and you're critical about who sung what or how some of the rude things that I said, guess what? You may need a fresh touch. And then he says, not only that, but you're going to leave and you're going to have submission and reverence to one another in love. And there's going to be mutual submission and thanksgiving in your heart because you were touched by the Holy Spirit. The next one, we got suffering, we got cheerfulness, but then he says, who is sick? Who is sick? So he's dealing with a lot of situations, isn't he? He said, is anyone among you sick? James 5, 14. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And you know, we, we, we've prayed. I didn't, get a, I didn't get an update this week, but I sent a message out in, in one of the groups that we have uh, Sarah Smith had been diagnosed with, with cancer and she had went through treatment. But the whole time I'd been sending her scripture verses and we'd been praying together and I'd had the church praying for her. And she went back after she'd been taking some treatment and they, and they, and they pretty much said, look, the tumors, are, they're, they're, they're gone. It's gone. Amen. Praise God. Yeah, you can give God praise. Like, I know some, yeah. So we're continuing to pray for her because she's going to continue treatment because, look, here's the thing. We don't deny medicine, right? We're not saying we don't, we, we, we're not denying medicine or what medicine can do. There are benefits to those types of things, but there are moments when God breaks in and heals His people. And so maybe you woke up with chronic pain. Maybe you came in here with some kind of sickness or illness. Maybe you're looking at surgery or whatever it may be. We've seen God heal people. We've seen God touch people's lives. But here's the thing, we live in a broken and a fallen world and sickness is one of the main indicators. Like even if you don't believe in God, when we had the COVID thing going on here for these years and some, some, some ways it's still going on, like what was ever, everybody was rallying trying to do what? They were trying to stop the sickness. You don't even have to believe in God to know that sickness is evil and wrong and we don't want it. Amen. Amen. We know that as human beings innately, that this is wrong and we don't want it, and so we fight against it. But see, Jesus Christ is God, and when He comes to earth, He comes as the great physician. And when Jesus showed up, He brought His kingdom, and what He demonstrated was that sin and sickness and death had infected a broken world. No real rhyme or reason to it sometimes. Sometimes we just fall sick. Sometimes people get greater sicknesses than others. We don't know why. It's different. Sometimes it seems random, right? We don't know why a lot of these things happen. We know that we live in a broken world. But when Jesus showed up on the scene, He brought His kingdom and He demonstrated that sin, sickness, and death were not a part of His kingdom. So He set people free from sin. He forgave them of sin. He healed people of their sickness and He even raised some of the dead. What I want you to know is that Jesus did not heal every single sick person that existed on the planet at that time, but He sure did heal some of the sick. 27 times in the Gospels, Jesus healed individuals. Ten times in the Gospels, He healed groups of people. And there were several times when it says that many came to Him and He healed them all. That everyone that came to Him in these groups, He healed them all. He say, well, yeah, but see, Jesus died and then He went to heaven. And since He went to heaven, that stopped. Well, the book of Acts continues. 
Because in the book of Acts, they're filled with the Spirit of God. And Luke writes the book of Acts, and he's actually a doctor, believe it or not. He writes the book of Acts, and there are 14 healing miracles in the book of Acts. 12 of 28 chapters, you see miraculous healing taking place. And so what I'm going to say is that Jesus, and I believe this with all my heart, is that Jesus still heals some of the sick. He still does. He still heals some of the sick. Now, there are kind of two errors when we talk about healing. One error is that Jesus cannot heal or He no longer heals. I just don't believe that. I reject that wholeheartedly. To say that Jesus cannot heal or He no longer heals is to deny the fact that God never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He did heal, and He's still healing some. He doesn't heal everybody right now, right? He doesn't heal everybody. Jesus did heal He still heals, and ultimately one day, even though we pray for a lot of people and they don't get healed, I'm telling you, in Christ, one day, everybody will be healed. And we long for that day. We long for that reunion. We long for that homecoming. But in the here and now, see, there's one error that Jesus cannot heal or He no longer heals. But the second error is this, that Jesus must heal. That's another error. And so we can't teach that, hey, Jesus has to heal. All you got to do is have the faith. I'm going, to, I'm going to open up the fact that faith is essential, that without, God is, without faith it is impossible to please God. For those who come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. But when we tell people that they're not healed because they don't have faith, that's abusive. I understand that. Because I've seen people with outrageous amounts of faith that weren't healed. And I can't explain that. I don't know why. I've prayed with some of the greatest amounts of faith and seen people die. I've prayed with almost no faith, it seems like, and people get healed. I don't understand the science or the dynamics behind the spiritual world, but I know that Jesus still heals. And I know that as a believer, what I'm commanded to do is continue to believe and trust and pray, believing that God will and He can heal. But even if He doesn't, in Christ, one day we will all be healed. And so that's where we're at. We're in this tension of the already, not yet. But just because we sometimes don't see healing means we stop praying. And a lot of times what happens is unbelief does infect us. Now, this is a very interesting thing because James specifically says, is is any among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church. Let them anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. Right? That's what it says. Now, there's only really two places in the New Testament where it talks about anointing with oil specifically. And we'll get into that here in just a minute. But there is... Medicinal purposes for oil in the Old Covenant, and there's also spiritual purposes. Now, in the Old Covenant, when they would pour oil and anoint somebody with oil, oftentimes what you'd find is the Holy Spirit would come upon them. That oil represents the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit shows up, He's the one who heals. He's the one who sets people free from captivity and from bondage and from satanic power. And in Isaiah 10, 27, notice what it says. It says, It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. And notice this. And the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. 
This is an Old Testament prophecy about the fact that there is a power released, not in the oil itself, but in the faith that is available through people who believe and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring freedom. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the good news to the afflicted, to heal the broken heart, to preach recovery of sight to the blind, to open the prison doors to those who are bound. And so the Holy Spirit brings His anointing and His power to set people free. Mark chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, it says that Jesus' disciples went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, when I read scriptures like that, most people in Western society in America, they say, well, yeah, that's great. That was for them. Praise the Lord. Now we don't have stuff like that. We sit like dried up prunes in church and God never moves. I know, I'm, I, Lord help me. I'm being offensive this morning. I'm sorry. Craig Keener is a, probably one of the top New Testament scholars in the world today. He teaches at Asbury Seminary. And I was going to tell this story, but I thought, no, it's going to hold more weight if I just read it. And, and so I want to read this story that he tells because he wrote, he wrote basically two volumes called Miracles. And they're about that thick each. They're huge. And he outlines a biblical, a biblical groundwork for, for, for miracles and healing uh, today. And he gives testimony after testimony. He married. He's from America. He went to Africa as a missionary. He married an African woman. They witnessed all sorts of miracles. They witnessed his mother-in-law be raised from the dead after she was clearly dead. Uh, and he, he, he puts all of these documented miracles on paper and he makes basically just a, a, a case biblically for, for the fact that miracles still happen. But here's one of the things that he said about our, our current condition in America as Western believers. And here's what he said. He said, Western missionaries to one region in Africa who merely left behind gospels reportedly returned to find a flourishing church with New Testament-like miracles happening daily because there had been no missionaries to teach that such things were not to be taken literally. I want you to understand what he's saying. He's saying missionaries went into these places where they'd never heard about Jesus, and they actually found that if they just left them Bibles and went home, when they came back, the churches were doing better than the churches where missionaries stayed because they were reading Bibles and believing it at face value for themselves and didn't have any Western mindsets to tell them, don't take most of this stuff literally. God doesn't do that anymore. They believed that God still did it because they read it and didn't have a Bible teacher to teach them that He didn't. Think about that. Now he says, one anthropologist recounts the experience of a fellow anthropologist named Jacob Lowen who was doing Bible translation among the Choco people in Panama. The wife of his host, Aureliano, wonderful name, was dying and medicine was unavailable. And while Lowen had translated the promise of healing that we just read in James 5, 14 and 15, he felt that he lacked the faith to pray. Nevertheless, reading this passage, the local believers prayed with him for her healing. And she rallied slightly. By the next morning, however, she was dying again. So the local believers anointed her with oil without inviting Lowen, and this time she rose from the bed completely well. When Aureliano declared happily that God had healed his wife, Lowen observed that they had not invited him and his Western colleague to pray this time. 
And Aureliano apologized but noted, it doesn't work when you and David are in the circle. You and David don't really believe. Lowen was a devoted Christian but found, and here's his own words, himself unable to transcend the secular assumptions and understandings of his particular birth society. What he's saying is, the truth is, is that in the Western culture that we live in, we have such a scientific worldview that we cut off the supernatural. Even our churches are infected with unbelief and we teach unbelief from our pulpits. What he's saying is that in a society where they've not yet been indoctrinated into unbelief, God has a greater potential for breaking in because people actually believe that he will. And so one of the things that I'm saying that we need to pray is that these strongholds of unbelief would be torn down in our mind. I'm not asking for us to get crazy. Here's the thing. I'll preach this this morning, and somebody out there in the world that listens to this will call me a heretic. And you know what? I don't care. Because that's just where I'm at with it. I'm at the place where I want God to be God and every other man be a liar. I want to see what God is capable of, not what my doctrines are capable of. I want to know what the Word of God says and what God still does. And I want a people who still believe in the real God. Let God correct us. Let God change us. Let God rebuke us if He needs to do so. But we need to take Him at His Word and believe God to do His miracles, to, to release His power, to save, to set people free in this hour. And so many times we hinder God through our unbelief. We hinder God through our unbelief. Now, that being said, that being said, is everybody going to get healed? I don't necessarily, obviously. We, we don't see everybody healed. I don't know why I don't have the answers. But we must continue to pray and to believe. Amen. 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 So next, it says, who is sinning? James 5, verse 15, he says, If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Constantly in the New Testament, he's telling us to pray for one another because Christianity is about one another. And he ties praying for healing also to confessing our sins. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your... How many of you, you enjoy confessing your sins to one another? How many of you, you got somebody in your life, you just go up to and you confess your sins to them? Uh, last week, I actually, from the pulpit, confessed one of my sins to you guys. So I was hoping, you know, maybe they'll take this and it'll open their hearts and they'll confess some of their sins. But I want you to understand something. Confessing sins, you ain't got to confess it to everybody. But you need to confess it to God. And you need to find somebody that you can share your heart with, to confess your struggles with, and have them pray for you. Because there's something that happens when you confess your sins. He says, confess your sins one to another and then pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. He's saying there's healing that takes place. I went to the Dollar General here the other day. And as I was checking out, there was a woman. She looked at me and she was all like laughing. And then she looked at me and she kind of stopped for a minute. And she said, how you been doing? And I was like, uh, pretty good. How you been doing? I didn't know who it was. She started to open up to me, and I remembered after she said, she said, well, you probably don't remember me. She said, but you prayed for me about, uh, she said it was a long time ago, and she told me about the situation. And I remember very specifically, this woman came in, and the Lord gave me, it put a word on my heart for her. And, 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 and she confessed something to me, and she basically repented of that in that moment. And I prayed for her, and God healed her. God healed her spiritually, emotionally, and even physically. 
And so, and she remembered it very specifically. You're talking about 10 years later. But what opened it up was the fact that she was willing to break down and open up something that she had been dealing with and confess one of her faults before me. And when she did, she forgave a person. She opened up. And when I prayed for her, God touched her and healed her spiritually, emotionally. And so she remembered that. And my point being is that here's the thing. We've all got sin and the church is not here to pour guilt on you. The church is here to pour grace out on you. So when we talk about confessing of sins, it's not because we want you to feel guilty and ashamed of what you've done. It's because we want you to be forgiven and set free from what you've done. And God is not here to make you feel bad about what you've done. God is here to point you to the cross and say, look at what I did because of what you've done. I died on the cross for your sin because I wanted you set free so badly. And I'm telling you, if you will confess that sin and recognize it and repent of it, then you can pray and I will bring healing into you, spirit, soul, and body. Because number one, I want you to understand that sin can cause some physical problems. I don't know if you realize this or not. You know, the Bible says to not get drunk, not get intoxicated. Some of y'all know from, from experience, you get drunk and intoxicated long enough, it will affect you physically. I remember my mom scared to death, thought I was going to destroy my liver at about the age of 17. You know what I'm talking about? Like it was, you, you will destroy yourself. The Bible talks about not having sex before marriage or outside of marriage, especially with multiple people. You know what could happen? It could affect you physically. It could affect you physically. You could open yourself up to some kind of disease just by an action that you make, a sinful action that you make. You know, the, the Scripture talks about not overindulging. It talks about not being a glutton. But when we eat, I don't know if you realize this or not, but if I eat Fritos chips every single day of my life, if I eat McDonald's cheeseburgers every single day and nothing else, it's going to affect me physically. Right? Nobody amen me on that one. If I smoke cigarettes two packs a day before long, it's going to take a toll on my body. There are some things that are simply wisdom. Would you amen me on this this morning? Like it's a reality. There are things that we can do where we abuse our bodies and it, and it, and it breaks us down. But sin can also cause mental and emotional problems. Like when we commit certain actions that God has told us, do not do this, and we do it, it actually... It, it brings bitterness into our heart. It brings hatefulness into our heart. It brings envy into our heart. And mentally and emotionally, sometimes we are just outside the limits, aren't we? We're just, we're just in a mess worrying about things, caught up in things. And sin can also cause spiritual problems. And what I mean by that is that when we commit sin, believe it or not, we are making, we're basically saying, God, I don't agree with you. I agree with the devil on this one. And when I agree with the spirit of lust or when I agree with the spirit of bitterness or hatred, I'm basically saying, come on in here. And I open doors for the demonic activity to oppress me or influence me in ways that otherwise he would not have entrance into my life. The Bible says, give no place to the devil. Give no place to him. And there's certain sinful actions that we commit that basically bring us into spiritual bondage. And some people, all you need to do is actually recognize your sin, repent of it, renounce it, say, I'm no longer going that direction. I break agreement with the enemy. And Lord, I'm asking you to heal me and set me free right now in Jesus' name. And I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit will come and He will set you free and He will bring peace into your life. I believe that because I have experienced it myself. And some people that are in, in, in these things, you need to bring somebody that you can trust that's a wise counsel that you can confess these things to because the enemy is lying to you and he makes you want to believe that you'll never get free from what you're in, but I'm telling you that Jesus Christ will set you free. Amen. 
The power of the Holy Spirit will set you free. If you're willing to do it God's way. James 5, 16, I love what it says. It says, tremendous power is released through the passionate, heartfelt prayer of a godly believer. Prayer works, y'all. You know, a lot of times, like, we'll get on Facebook and we'll say prayers, prayers, prayer. I'm telling you, don't just say prayers. Pray. Pray with heartfelt passion. Because there's tremendous power released, not when you say prayers, but when you actually pray from your heart. There's tremendous power released when you stop to connect with God. When somebody sends out a prayer request, if I've got a minute, rather than responding prayers, stop, I pray. Because I know that one prayer can shift everything. I believe one prayer can change everything. Because it comes from my heart, and this scripture says that tremendous power is released through the passionate, heartfelt prayer of a godly believer. And so the next thing that, that, that really he gets into is who is weary, who's struggling, who has reached their limits. How many of you are just worn down with what's been going on in your life? You say, I can't go much further at all. And I need some kind of passionate, heartfelt prayer because I'm broken down and I have reached my limits and I'm frustrated and it's been tough. And I need you to understand one thing. You need to learn, within the, you need to, learn to live within the limits that God has provided for you. Most of us, we work way too much. We're way too busy. We got too many things on our plate and we do not keep the Sabbath. Somebody amen me, right? Like you don't even have a day that you rest. And you wonder why you're burnt out and struggling and wore out and frustrated. You don't have a day that you rest and you don't have a time that you actually turn everything off to spend alone with God in prayer and you wonder why you're burnt out and frustrated. That's exactly why you're weary and you're burnt out and you're frustrated. And he's saying the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I think about Jesus sometimes. You know, what would Jesus do? Jesus would not be running wide open like you are. Matter of fact, I know multiple times where Jesus went apart into a solitary place, spent all night and prayed with nobody around. I know several times where all the disciples were worried, scared to death because the storm was going on. You know what Jesus did? He was taking a nap, my friend. I'm like, you know what? I won't be like Jesus. I'm going to get me a good pillow. I tell Andre that all the time. Sometimes during the day, I just, I went in, you know, I've been working for a while. There's a good couch over there from about one to two. I went and took a nap, y'all. The Lord blessed my socks off. I was coming into the rhythms of the Spirit. Amen. I'm serious right now. Some of y'all, you got too much going on and you need to draw back to be with God at some point because you're too weary and you need to take a rest. But see, there's power in your prayer. Who is doubting? Who is doubting? James 5, 17 through 18, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. You know, it says that Elijah prayed fervently and he shut the heavens up. Now, if you read the story, this is what's so interesting about this story. Here it says he prayed fervently the first time and then he just prayed again and the heavens were open. You know, if you read the story, he goes to where Ahab and Jezebel are, which are terrible people at the time. He goes into where they're at and he basically just declares, hey, there ain't going to be no rain at my command, period. 
And all he was doing was declaring God's word that he knew to be true. He didn't even pray. He didn't say, God, shut up the heavens. He said, there's not going to be any more rain except at my command. Because he was so full of God's word and God's promise. God had told them, if you worship other false gods, I will shut up the heavens and give no rain. All he did was he believed God's word so much that he declared it. And sometimes that's all prayer is. Sometimes prayer is just knowing God's word and believing it so much that all you do is declare it. And it says, and the heavens were shut, and it did not give any more rain. And then it says he prayed again. Now, the second time he prayed, he bends down, puts his head between his knees seven times. And each time that he prays, he sends his servant out to go see if the rain's coming. Now, to me, that sounds like fervent prayer. Making a command or getting my head down between my knees and praying and saying, Lord, please let the rain come back. Open the heavens. Like it took him seven times. But I want you to understand there's a time for both. There's a time for you to get along with God and pray earnestly with your face down privately saying, God, I need you to move in this situation. And then there's a time when you rise up in faith and you know God's word and you simply make a declaration. In the New Testament, when they, hit, when they brought healing into people's lives, they didn't say, God, please heal them. They said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. They had the Word of God in their heart. There was no more doubt left in their heart because they had moved to a different place in prayer. They had moved beyond their doubt and their prayer was breaking through. It says Elijah was a man just like ours. He was literally a superhero, but he was a man just like you and I. There was nothing special about Elijah. He was an ordinary man that was completely submitted to God. And here's the last one that James says, and this is maybe the most important one, especially in ministry, and this finishes out the book of James. But who is wandering? In verse 19 and 20, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And really there's four ways to wander. You can wander. The scripture says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And we can wander in heart because we just start going through the motions and we get lukewarm. And our relationship with God, many of us, if we were to admit it today, we would really admit that in our hearts, God has just sort of become a peripheral issue. My heart's not passionate about God anymore. I've, I've become lukewarm. And maybe even you've made a mistake that you feel so guilty about that you don't think that you can get close to God again. And I'm telling you, the blood of Jesus grants you access. You can come back to God. You can be rid of that guilt. Some of you have been hurt, maybe church hurt, and you got bitterness in your heart. You got bitterness in your soul. You're not nurturing your relationship with God because of that bitterness. And you can enter into forgiveness and have healing in your heart and in your soul. Some of you have wandered in your mind. you got crazy thoughts going off in your mind. Maybe even you've been introduced to some of the doctrines of the world and you're confused about truth. And God is saying, no, there's truth in my word. I know there's some things in our culture and in our hour that are hard to understand. And I know you've strayed away because you've got doubts about the truth of God. But you can come back in the spirit of truth. We'll teach you. He'll show you the way. He'll give you new direction. And then some people have wandered in their strength. They've just given in to temptation. They've committed a sin that they think is beyond forgiveness, is beyond repair, and you've wandered astray in your very actions. But I need you to understand 
that Jesus says there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that comes to repentance than 99 righteous. Every single one of us could be righteous and perfect and holy before God this morning. And you know what the Lord would say? Say, that's great. Y'all are doing great. I'm so proud of you. But there could be one sinner in here this morning, one person that has done something. And I'm going to tell you something. If we're going to be all honest, there's more than one, right? Me too. Amen. But that one that decides to turn back to the Lord, he says there's rejoicing in heaven over that one. He leaves the 99. He leaves this church building to go out after the one. And what he's saying to you is if this is a reality and you're sharing God's heart, he says let the person know that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Who is the Lord sending you to? Who needs a Bible? Who needs an invitation to church? Who needs an invitation to dinner? Who is wandering? Who's got questions? Who's struggling? Who don't even know if they believe in God anymore? Who, who doesn't even think that the things that I'm preaching are the truth anymore? Who's wandering? Who needs to have a conversation? God may be dealing with your heart specifically for you to come back, but He may be dealing with your heart because He's wanting you to cover a multitude of sins and go after that lost sheep that you know is wandering. God is saying, they've made bad decisions. Don't cut them off and say, well, let them lie in their bed. No, He says, go out after them. Bring them back. Cover a multitude of sins. This is where it's at this morning. I want you to bow your heads right where you're at. The Lord may be dealing with your heart because you have wandered and you have strayed. And I'm not going to ask anybody to come forward. I don't like putting people out in the open because I don't like to do that myself. But sometimes I just like to know. And if you're willing, you say, man, I have wandered. And I need Jesus and I want restoration in my life just as an act of faith between me, you, and God. Would you raise your hand right now and just say, that's me. I've wandered. I want to, I want to come back to Jesus. Anybody. Anybody at all. Anybody at all. Now, is there anybody on your heart? Those of you who feel like, man, I'm with God. I'm with Him. Is there anybody on your heart God is saying, this person has wandered and I want to use you to bring them back to me to cover a multitude of sins to bring them back into my grace and back into my mercy and remind them how much I love them remind them how much I care for them let God lay that on your heart this morning and Father I just pray that you would have your way just move in our hearts move in our minds Lord give us strength refine us in our souls reset us this morning Lord Jesus Holy Spirit we're open to you we want you to do your work there's people that are suffering there's people that are sick some people in here that are cheerful this morning some that are doubting but for all of us Lord you have given instruction and so I pray you would give us the proper response to that instruction and we ask it in Jesus name Amen